There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is an inspirational thought leadership platform that advances the conversation on living and working with passion, inspiration, and purpose. I'm committed to helping create a world where business and capitalism are a force for good, constantly working to address the immense number of problems society faces, serving all stakeholders, certainly its employees among them. The Gallup organization reports that 85% of the global workforce does not want to go to work on Monday or whenever the shift starts. Let's change that together. And instead, make work, make work an enriching part of life that expresses meaningful contribution and helps us grow into our highest selves, all in service of the organization's purpose. Each week in these conversations, I hope you walk away with something that changes the way you think or that you can immediately put to use. Much of the content we discuss on this program is a reflection of the work I do. So as you listen, if you catch a glimpse of anything I can do to help, go to my website at elisecortez.com and use the contact me feature to message me. And let's talk about what's going on for you and how I might be able to help, whether it's consulting on visioneering for a greater purpose among your stakeholders, the vitally inspired leadership program, the online catch fire learning communities, or speaking for your company or conference. At any rate, I'm glad we're connected and thanks for listening. Now on to this week's program. With us today for the third time is Dr. Arthur Siramacoli. He's a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is a member of the American Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association, and he's the author of The Triumph of Diversity, Rejoice in and Benefit from the Interconnectedness of Humankind, also the book called The Soulful Leader, Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy, and finally, the book The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience, all of which we've discussed on this radio program, plus many other things that he's done as well. Today, we'll be talking about that recent book about the triumph over diversity and what it can teach us about how to recognize our prejudices and bias and learn to be more empathetic and curious about anyone who registers as different from us. He joins us today from the Boston area, Dr. Sarah McCauley, affectionately called Dr. C. Welcome back to Working on Purpose. Thank you, Elise. Good to talk with you again. We seem, Always. We seem to be doing this every year. Yeah, as I said when, before we got on air, I, I recognize this because you keep writing books, so keep at it, would you? Yes. <laughs> okay, we need you. So I, I want to start with what I saw as the premise of your book. And as you know, I'm prone to do, Dr. C. I do read the book cover to cover. Um, I'm told by many other other authors that that's not something that all the all hosts do. But for me, that's the reason I host the show is to learn and grow. So mm-hmm. the premise of your book, um, that you wrote it from a broken heart at the developments in society today, and that in it you offer how having an open mind and open heart enriches lives. Can we start with that? Well, you know, I wrote the book, Elise, because I, I'm just very disturbed by what's happening in our country today. We have the highest rates of prejudice and hate crimes that we've had in many, many years. Very high rates of anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim attitudes and hate crimes. The same thing to LBGDQ uh, people and also in the workforce. You know, um, women say that 40% of women are discriminated in the workplace. And in, in over 20 years ago, 
we were ranked high in terms of gender equality in the world. A few years ago, we were ranked 28th in terms of gender equality. Now, as of 2019, we're ranked 149. So I'm very disturbed by what's happening in that regard. And I'm hoping this book and, and you know, the work that you do and I do and many others will help people realize that um, being prejudiced toward others really limits your capacity to grow. It, when you when you don't accept diversity, don't don't embellish it, don't realize that people, if you judge people by the way they look, the color of their skin, their religious religion, their ethnic background, you're being very short-sighted and you're using very black and white thinking. You're making a decision about somebody based on their appearance or their orientation. And when you look beyond that, and you know you know that my work focuses a great deal on empathy, the capacity, to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another is that I teach people to utilize empathy, to look beyond the surface into the heart and souls of what another person is really made up of. We know that when that happens, and particularly when leaders employ that technique, when when leaders employ empathy and they're authentic, it, it filters down to all people in their organizations. It does in the educational world, it does in the corporate world. Right now, I think we don't have that in the political world. People are constantly criticizing each other, calling each other names, very uncivil behavior and unempathic behavior. And that has a profound effect on the society. So I wrote this book for those reasons because I'm trying to find remedies to reverse what has been a trend for the last two to five years. Mm. Two things, if I can, Dr. C, before we go on is, one, I want to really, of course, applaud because, I, as you know, I'm aligned with with what you're doing, which is another reason you and I keep coming back together again. Um, and, and I do think we can do so much better as human beings. We can do better than we are today. And so I appreciate that you're giving us a, a roadmap to be able to do that. And then the second thing I want to say is for our listeners who are listening to you talk about this, so much of what they've heard me say before in other programs and in, my, in, in other episodes and in my programs is one way to find our purpose is to discover what is it about what big hairy problem out there in the world do we want to help to stand to solve. And mm-hmm. for you, part of that is it's discrimination. It's not appreciating diversity. It's a lack of empathy. And so it's just such a great example, Dr. C, of what it looks like when we identify where can we be of service and then we just bring it like you've been bringing it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my life's work, at least as you said, I've been doing this for over 35 years, is that to help people reduce prejudice, not only toward others, but beginning to with within, helping them reduce prejudice toward themselves. Because we all grow up writing a novel about ourselves and other people. And I say it's a novel because it's based on what we hear from other people. If you grow up in a home where you're called names or demeaned, and you grow up in a home where people are, are making anti-Semitic comments or, or comments about black people or comments about Muslim people, and they're very derogatory. As a child, you believe what you hear. You not only believe what you hear about you, you believe what you hear about other people. Our, our responsibility, I believe, as adults is that we have to make that novel a nonfiction book. We have to find out the facts. And this book is very oriented toward helping people be fact-oriented. Empathy is fact-oriented. Empathy slows down the process and really listens to other people to find out what the facts are, not what our preconceived notions have taught us from old conditioning. Yeah, I think that bears us really going into a little bit deeper for our listeners to really get access to that, Dr. C. Uh, you do remind us in the book that prejudice and d- discrimination are learned 
They're not just part of the fabric of our being. So just as appreciation for diversity, acceptance, and joy in engaging those who seem different is also learned. So I think it's important that that listeners understand that just because they've grown up with these different messages and such doesn't mean they have to continue with them. Absolutely, Elise. You know, I was told when I was a senior in high school that I wasn't college material, and here I am talking <laughs> to you. So uh, know. You know, we all hear things about ourselves that, God, thank God, we find out are not actually accurate. And it's very important, not only about other people, but if you have biases toward yourself, if you have prejudices toward yourself, then you don't see other people clearly because you have blind spots. So my work is to help people see clearly, see the truth internally and externally. And right now we're in a crisis because we're in a, we're in a, a time in our society where hate crimes are increasing, not decreasing, they're increasing. Anti-Semitic uh, uh, hate crimes and harassments reached a record high last year. Um, an increase of 664 hate crimes to the year before, just the year before. That's you know, anti-Muslim, anti-Muslim hate crimes rose 67% in the last three years. And, a, and an interesting Gallup poll at least showed that those who hate Jews are 30 times more likely to hate Muslims. Mm, wow. So it's a thing. You know, that it's that us, you know, us, them, black and white thinking, not based on facts, based on fear of not belonging. You know, it's it's cultish. You know, you and I, we've talked about groupthink. You know, it's that type of thinking that creates that us, them dichotomy. If you're not in the in-group, everyone outside of that group is an enemy. And that's what's used to create cults and dogmatic thinking. It- it is. Uh, what's interesting is our listeners here, Brian and Prudence, are, are also and they're in the chat room here and they're talking about a question was, why does every other type get mentioned except white men when this is spoken of? Uh, you want to go ahead and address that? I'm sorry. Can you say that again? What about yeah, white men? Br- Brian is asking, why does every other type of every other type get mentioned except white men when this is spoken of th- this idea of prejudice and discrimination? Because in this book, I follow the FBI statistics. They're at the end of the book. So I'm, I'm following the hate crimes and discrimination that has been reported been recorded by the FBI. And according to the FBI, it, it's Jewish people, Muslim people, women, LBGTQ, and transgenders more than anyone else. 90% increase in hate crimes. So I'm going by statistics and also my experience. Do white people, white men, or uh, experience prejudice at some point? Well, of course, but not to the degrees that these folks do. Mm -hmm. Very well said. And Brian, thanks for the question. Well, so one of the things that you do beautifully in the book and that I really appreciate, because this gets to, okay, so we do have a problem. I think you've convinced us all that we have a problem here. What are we going to do about it? And one of the things that you offer, which I think is a delicious way to go about this, is this idea of deliberative polling. And you describe that as a random representative sample of people engaged in deliberation on current issues through small group discussions with experts to create more understanding and thoughtful, reflective opinion. And it brings individuals of various perspectives, including those from opposite views on many subjects to have civil dialogue on many political issues. I just, I think that idea is so important to presence for our listeners because you say in the book about how we, we tend to hang out with those that are like us. Well, yes. to purposely put ourselves into a deliberative polling situation like this 
it, I just see that as greatly expanding our empathy, our curiosity, our yeah. understanding, our connection. Will you say more about how does it work and wh- how, why does it work so well? Well, deliberate polling uh, is, is sort of swept through Europe. Many countries are using it, and we have had ex- experiments here in the in this country as well. One was called America in One Room, where they brought for two days brought together diehard Democrats and diehard Republicans. And what what was done was they brought in experts. For instance, they brought in experts, scientists on climate change, and they sat down and people and they gave people articles to read, and they had open discussions about it. And the scientists were showing them, once again, the facts. Then they had discussions of other issues, immigration. Should we build a wall? They brought in experts on that. They, they brought in experts on the economy. What happened was they were also listening to people's different perspectives, and the experts were pointing out where they were making distortions. And they were not based on facts. They might have heard it on social media or in the news, but it was not fact-oriented. What happened at the end of two days of both sides meeting? of the people said they changed their minds. 70%. Amazing. This is what happens in my communication and leadership groups, Elise. And one of the reasons, you know, as I mentioned in the group, that diversity training has not worked so well in the corporate world, it doesn't last long enough. You know, imagine this American one room was two days, two whole days. My groups meet every week. They're mainly people in the business world, but they, but they're, you know, half of the group are from other countries who have come here. They've immigrated and they're here. So <clears throat> I have clients from from Japan, from uh, from China, from Australia, from England, from Spain, from Italy, uh, from Iran, and from India. And when those people walk into a room and then there's the rest of the group is white Americans. These are all people who are going to become Americans or some of them already are. But, you know, there's been studies that show when people see a face that they're not familiar with, they kind of repel a little bit. They get a little anxious. And so, so many of these credible studies have shown that they're, they're called stranger studies. When you reach out to somebody you don't know or doesn't look like you, almost in, in high percentages, people will say that they enjoyed the interaction and they found that that person was quite different than what they imagined. In these groups, that's what happens. But we meet week after week after week, so in, in 12 consecutive weeks. So we get time to know each other. And people ultimately value people for their character, not the color of their skin, their ethnicity, or their religion. Mm. Well, I am one of those kind of people, I'm sure you probably know this about me, Dr. C. And I don't know if you remember, but my students also call me Dr. C. But So we have a, a little bit in common there. But um, I love talking to new people. I was just driving in in a suburb in Dallas yesterday, and I stopped, of course, whenever I stop into a restaurant, I always stop at the bar because then I could talk to people. No one is safe, right? And the more different they look from me somehow, the more interesting they are to me. Yes. What can I learn from them? They're, they have a different vantage point of the world. They see it differently. And I'm hungry to have access to that. So I'm maybe I'm weird, Dr. C, but I do tend to, I'm drawn to what's different from me. I don't think you're weird. I think you're compassionate and empathic, and I think you love people. That's my impression of you, which is what I, if every human being was like you, the country would turn around tomorrow. Mm, 
Well, I'm in for it. Well, along those lines then, I mean, this is one other thing I wanted you to say a little bit more about. You've already served it up, but I think it's so important for our listeners to get this is you do talk about how this book builds on your previous ones, especially on empathy. And you talk about how empathy opens the door to the commonalities of humanity, like we're talking about here, me me reaching across the aisle, and that it also removes our lens to see fear or some, see people that are different from us as being fearful. Yes. Uh, the reason I want you to talk more about that is because I think a lot of people don't understand the power of empathy. They still see it as squishy and soft. Yes. And <coughs> excuse me. I think people confuse empathy with sympathy. Empathy, sympathy rushes into console based on identifying with someone else. Because if you went through a divorce and I say, oh, I've gone through a divorce. I know exactly what you're going through. Well, I really don't because you may have had a different experience than I with the spouse. But Empathy, sympathy assumes. Empathy is objective. It's fact-oriented. And it, it, it allows us to see beyond the surface and see who other people really are, what's their character. And empathy is the heart of diversity. And diversity, people oftentimes don't realize, increases creativity, productivity, and profitability. Empathic organizations, I mean, if you get 10 white men or 10 white women or 10 black women or 10 uh, Jewish women in one group and they're going to decide what the market demands and what we should bring to market, you're preaching to the choir. You don't get many diverse ideas. When you have a group of people like the group that I described where you have so many people from very different backgrounds, the whole world opens up. You're, you're now you're talking and you're looking at the world in the marketplace internationally, not just in your little world, in your small world. I, I like to differentiate, differentiate between small world thinking and large world. And that's what happens when you have diversity. Empathy allows people, again, not to go by the, the face, the strange face or the strange look or the strange clothes, but talk enough, listen enough to ascertain the facts to see who the person is. And when that happens, when that happens in an organization, when that happens in business or in education, and when it even happens in a family, it's infectious. It trickles down, just like when you have a toxic leader. When you know, I've, and I'm sure you have as well. You know, we've consulted to corporations. I can tell the the, the demeanor of a leader when I start to walk into a, a business. You know, you're greeted by the receptionist who seems rather cold. I walk by two. This is actually experience I had a few weeks ago. I walked by a couple of uh, two or three men in three-piece suits. They don't say hello. They don't say good morning. They just keep walking. Then I go in and meet the CFO and the CEO, and it's the same attitude. Why is that? Because when you have leaders that are toxic, when you have leaders that are blamers, when you have leaders that don't accept responsibility for their own flaws and mistakes and allow themselves to be vulnerable, but also allow their staff or their workers to be vulnerable, you don't have an expansive ideas. These, these leaders lead through aggression and fear, and they destroy the spirit of people who work for them. The amazing thing that I've learned in the corporate world is when you have leaders like that, even if a person's bonus is dependent on that person, they will undermine them. They'll undermine them unconsciously because they don't like them, and they feel devalued and demeaned by them on a consistent basis. When you have someone who is leading with empathy and brings in a diverse group of people, you know that that person appreciates difference. That person is not afraid of difference. That person wants to learn from your different experiences. Isn't that exciting? That's the infectious part. 
Yes, and I am. I totally stand to support the same thing. And and we want to grab our next break, our first break here. And I want to hear more after the break about how it is you make those conversations happen. So, listeners, stay with us. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, who is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is the author of the book The Triumph of Diversity: Rejoice in and Benefit from the Interconnectedness of Humankind, and also the book called The Soulful Leader: Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and empathy just two of his more recent books he joins us today from boston we'll be right back Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now... Back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is a member of the American Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association. Dr. C, as he's affectionately called, is the author of The Triumph of Diversity, Rejoice in and Benefit from the Interconnectedness of Humankind, and The Soulful Leader, Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy, just two of his more recent books, among many. I'm your host. Dr. Elise Cortez. So, Dr. C., before we get into some of the programs that you do, I do want to surface something really important for our listeners that is probably something they maybe it's just so much the fabric of their being that they won't be able to distinguish if we don't do this first. So, um, you, you make an important point in your book that there is a tendency for all of us to want to socialize within our own tribe, if you will, mm-hmm. and that what we need to do instead is to seek the company of others from different fa- faiths or heritage, et cetera. So first, why do we tend to seek our own tribe? Well, I think we seek our own tribe because of familiarity and because we feel safe when people look and seem and act like us. And that's normal. That's human. If you come from a particular background, if you're Hispanic or you're black or I'm, I'm Italian, you might have a certain affinity for those cultures. Um, and that's understandable. But don't block off the other cultures. You know, I interviewed a, a, an Indian engineer here, a, a lovely man, and he was telling me, you know, that he lectures to different Indian groups and different businesses because what he's trying to do is get them to expand and move out of their own group. And this isn't specific to Indians. I mean, we, we've all done this in our own little groups. But what he said to me, and I thought it was profound, he said, <clears throat> when I lecture, I tell my Indian colleagues, you want their money, but you don't want their people. And that's not fair. Mm. And I've heard this. I mean, I have, a, I have two, two young men who own several restaurants in this area, and they're Brazilian. 
and they get very mad at their relatives because and their extended family because in this particular t- city in near in outside of Boston there's a Brazilian sort of section and most of their relatives stay there they speak portuguese they watch brazilian tv and they don't have a lot of interest in interacting with people outside that circle and these two young men who are you know very much appreciative of being in america and they're thriving here with their restaurants they're trying to get their people their choir to extend themselves and learn the music of some other groups as they have and they've seen how they've grown from diversity i mean they have to greet people coming into a restaurant they can't only be serving brazilian people they have to serve everybody and so do we in any business or corporation or educational institution mm. Okay, that helps bring it alive for all of us, that we tend to seek what we already know. It's comfortable for us. Uh, one of the, the next things I want us to get to is, so then we would say, well, does, doesn't it help if we just do some maybe diversity training or something or to help eliminate bias? Doesn't that work? And you, of course, talk in your book that it doesn't. So will you say a little bit more about why that doesn't work before we talk about some of the programs that you do that do? Well, the continuity is critical. You know, di- diversity training has just been too short in the business world. It, it's it's helped to some degree, but it's sort of like, you know, when you have a motivational speaker come into a business or a corporation, people have the day off, they listen to the speaker, they find things interesting, and then you do the follow-up study six months later, and they hardly remember what he said, except that he told or she told some jokes that were funny, and they enjoyed that mo- that morning or that afternoon with their colleagues, because that's human nature. If you read a book once and you get quizzed on it without reading it a second time or studying it a little bit more, you don't retain much. So diversity training has clearly been too short. They, the, Harvard did a study in the business school and they were trying to figure out why the diversity training didn't really result in people acting very differently. And again, they found that I, they didn't really come up with a clear reason. When I read the study, I thought based on my own experience that it just didn't last long enough. It was like two hours and two and a half hours, two hours, one week, and then two weeks later, they did another hour and that was it. So if you don't have continuity, you're not going to get the benefits of diversity training because a lack of diversity creates fear. Fear produces negative brain changes and reduces our ability to think creatively. So it limits, in, in essence, anyone's potential. But in order to unravel the uneasiness that people have, and not just giving them educational information, but when you engage in a group, you know, in the kind of groups that that I'm running, and I'm not complimenting myself, anybody could do this, is we're actually talking to each other about backgrounds and people are being educated. Um, I told a story, you know, in the beginning of the group about this man who came to me from the Midwest, Michigan, and he said, oh, I'm I'm, I'm so glad that I'm seeing you. And he was referred to me by his HR department because he didn't like working with Indian engineers. He, had, he went to HR and was complaining, and th- they sent him to me for consultation. He said, I'm so glad to be seeing you because my last psychologist in Michigan was Jewish. I said, uh, okay, what, 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 what didn't you like about the Jewish psychologist? And he said, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know. There were no Jews in our town, and I never met any Jewish people, and I just felt uncomfortable. I'm so glad that you're a Christian. I said, how do you know I'm Christian? He said, well, your last name is Sierra McCauley. You must be Catholic or Christian of some sort. I said, well, what if I'm Jewish? He said, you can't be Jewish. I said, do you know there's 48,000 Italian Jews in Italy right now? I said, do you know that 1,100 Italian Jews died in Auschwitz? 
And all of a sudden, there was a dead silence. He felt very uncomfortable. He says, now you're making me feel uncomfortable. I said, I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm just trying to help you understand. There are Italian Jews. I said, now, when you came in here, you were excited about seeing me. Seven to eight, ten minutes into this session, I can see that you're feeling differently. And he said, yeah, I know. I'm embarrassed. I said, am I a different human being? He said, no, I guess not. To make a long story short, we went on meeting for 18 months he joined one of my groups and individually, I knew that he had goodness inside him, this fella. <clears throat> he opened up and he learned more and more. And at the end of our my last session, he said to me, Dr. C, I never, you know, I have a home office. That's where we're talking from right now, Elise. And he said, you know, I, I never see your wife and kids in the yard or anything, even in the summer. And he said, it's summer. And I said, uh, well, how do you know I have a wife and kids? He goes, oh my God. Now you're telling me you're an Italian gay Jew? <laughs> and that's what I have for psychologists. <laughs> and I said, Luke, does it matter? And he said, you know what, Doc, I'm, I'm all past that. It doesn't matter at all. And he was light about it. He was kidding. And I thought, that's the triumph of diversity. And, and the work that you do is really powerful, Dr. C. And if I may say that I disagree with you, of course, re- respectfully, I don't think any, just anybody can do your work. And so if we can, um, before we go on our next break here, I want you to share a little bit about these leadership and communication groups where you help participants understand how they can develop prejudices based on their ignorance of those they demonize. That's just so important that we recognize that mm-hmm. or those we're not familiar with. So would you say a little bit more about how you do this work? What's involved? How do people come, if you will, to the other side? Well, you know, it's interesting, particularly with men, because for some reason, many times when I get referred a man from the corporate world, whether it's a CEO or CFO or just an, or an engineer or whatever, I get told by HR they don't have the empathy gene. And, <laughs> heard that too, yeah. <laughs> and in my long career, at least, I've never been told that about a woman. So, um, <laughs> and it's interesting because my daughter, our daughter is a kindergarten teacher, and she will tell you, and, and I've interviewed other kindergarten teachers too, and they will tell you when the boys and girls are out on the playground in and, and kindergarten, the boys are just empathic as, as empathic as the girls. What happens as time goes on? They learn their role. Empathy goes underground. And in these groups, I have to bring it out. You know, I try to I try to teach people that I'm not so focused on what's wrong with you. I'm trying to uncover what's always been right with you. Everybody has the capacity for empathy. Empathy neurons are in every brain of every human being. But for a lot of males, some females too, but more, more males, generally speaking, it goes underground because their model, their fathers don't like it. You know, my daughter was telling me of a a little boy that she said he's probably the most empathic boy in my class. And his father came in and he went to hold the dad's hand and the dad roughly pushed the hand away. He goes, we don't want to hold hands. (laughs) Now, she said to me, she goes, dad, by the time that little boy's in the fourth grade, he won't be as empathic. It's going to go underground. He's going to have to see you when he's 40. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and so such important work to be doing in the world and, and talk about making a difference with your one precious life, Dr. C. I, I really appreciate who you are and, and how you're helping us all get more access to the idea of, um, of empathy, of curiosity, of connection. So important. Well, I, I'm, I'm very thankful that you're having me on again and that we can spread the word. You know, I think this needs to be a movement, Elise, because we really are facing difficult times. I mean, obviously even more difficult with what's happened with the virus. But, 
you know, even now you can see the blaming. You know, this is a this is a foreign virus. It's not an American virus. I mean, how silly. We got We have to blame somebody. You know, it came from another country. It could have come from this country and gone to another country. Rather than blaming, why not come together and work together? Why not learn from other countries what they're doing? Why, why do we have to be blaming? Why do we have to be demeaning? It's affecting the world. You know, I start this, I start this book with a quote. It's my favorite quote of all from Thomas Paine. My, my religion is to do good. My, my country is the world. And I think I think that just, I mean that summarizes a feeling of we're all together. Maybe we look a little different, but we're together. We should be together rather than separating. We we need to be in a time where rather than people ostracizing and separating, and you have to pick a side. We need to come together and see the commonality of all of us, not just Americans. But you know that's one of my concerns too that we don't seem to be caring about people outside of our country. What, what about the rest of the world? We all came from somewhere else, by the way. And when we don't care about other people, eventually that creates a kind of isolation and attention within oneself because then you become afraid of other people. Mm-hmm. And the polarization just increases. Aligned on that, Dr. C. Let's grab our last break here already. Time flies when you're having fun. I'm Dr. Lise Cortez, your host. We are on the air with Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, who is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He's the author of the book entitled The Triumph of Diversity, Rejoice in and Benefit from the Interconnectedness of Humankind, and a book entitled The Soulful Leader, Success with Authenticity, Integrity, and Empathy, just two of his more recent books. He joins us today from Boston. Stay with us. After the break, we're going to talk about pathological certainty. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He's a member of the American Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association. Dr. C is the author of the book, The Triumph of Diversity, Rejoice in and Benefit from the Connected Interconnectedness of Humankind, which we're discussing today. I'm your host, Dr. Luis Cortez. So as I as I said just before the break, listeners, um, I came across a, a, a phrase in this book that I have never heard before, but I find it quite riveting: um, pathological certainty. Um, so, would you talk to us about what that is, why it's important, and what we can do about it? 
Well, pathological certainty really is a characteristic that toxic leaders have, Elise. It, it's the belief that I'm right all the time. It's, it's entering into categories that you really have no knowledge of, but you insist that you are the expert. As, as spouses, they drive people crazy. They drive their spouses and, and their children crazy because they, they can't be vulnerable. They're very insecure, so they have a grandiose tendency. They, they don't give answers that indicate a vulnerability that I don't know or I'll check it out with somebody who does know. They don't tend to use good consultants. They like to have people around them that are more parasitic. They more uh, make them look good. You know, they're toxic leaders, blaming leaders tend to be pathological in, uh, in, in that regard. And often they can, they, they're dr they drastically hurt the spirit of an organization, uh, w whether it's political or corporate, because they, their influence that goes down, they, they influence people from the top down. You know, there's a number of studies now that talk about the desensitization of prejudice. Several studies have demonstrated that frequent exposure to hate speech online or in person desensitizes those listening to forms of verbal violence against particular groups. So when we hear that it doesn't matter if a leader talks this way or that, yes, it does. This exposure, it lessens the perceived suffering of those that are being the object of hate crimes because that kind of language encourages hate rather than bringing people together. And some of these people, some people with pathological certainty have what we call personality disorders. You know, that pathological certainty may never change. That's why leaders who are toxic, I mean, oftentimes they have to be let go. The board has to decide whether it's worth having a person that leads that way. Unfortunately, if, if you have a, a family or a parent who leads that way, it's, it's horrific for the people living with them and especially children because it's a horrible model. I have encountered several of those people in my work on developing leaders and consulting with organizations. And so I, I know what you're talking about. And I have seen them removed uh, from the organization. Is there, for those, so that we can at least give some hope here, um, is there a way to help those people? Well, you know, that's why I said um, yes and no. Some people who lead that way when they're educated, if it's not an embedded part of their personality, embedded part of their culture, they're open to changing, not easily. It takes a long time. Other people, they, they're just not open to hearing anything, anything but they're right and they want you to idealize them. If you're not idealizing them, you're not part of the, you're not part of the group. <clears throat> so they're the ones who are often firing people. They're known for firing people. People come and go because once you differ with them, you're not around very long. You know, John Dean, remember John Dean with Richard Nixon, uh, and I believe this is a true story. I didn't hear it from John Dean, but I but I read it in an article once, and it always stuck with me. During, during when he was in the cabinet with Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon began, a, when the new cabinet came in, he said, I want everybody to be open. I want everybody to ask questions. And I don't want you to feel afraid. You know, if you have a difference of opinion, I want to know about it. So John Dean spoke up and had, had a few comments when he differed, differed with the president. And then when the meeting was over, the pre, uh, President Nixon said to John Dean, uh, uh, you need to stay behind. Everybody left. And he looked at John Dean. He goes, don't you ever contradict me again in front of those people. And he, he laced into him. So it's sort of like the mission statement of a corporation, right? They all read nicely. But are they leading that way? Are they really are they really part of the mission statement or is it just a statement in the front of the building that makes them look good? 
Is it just to seek a certain image for the company? And it isn't really followed through. So this is so powerful because many, so much of the work that I do, Dr. C, when I'm inside organizations is to really help create purpose-inspired leaders and meaning-infused cultures. Because a lot of people, as I said at the beginning of the show, don't want to go to work on Monday. There's a reason for that. And part of the reason is they do work for, an, for a leader like this. Yeah. You t- you also use another phrase uh, later on in the book, sadistic leaders. Is that what you were talking about before? Yeah, I mean, sadistic leaders, and, and you know, I, I've i said in the book, and I've said it throughout my career, and this is my experience, and, and I would guess it has been yours too, because I know you're very experienced and have met many of these type of people, as as well as many good people. Sadistic leaders tend to blame. They don't accept responsibility, and they do tend to have what I call pathological certainty. They're never in doubt. They always know. They never say, I don't know. Therefore, their people who work for them can't say, I don't know either. Mm-hmm. So people are always saying, absolutely, yeah, we can get that. We can get that to market soon. You know, everybody's walking around with this false sense of greatness, and, and, and they know that it's not true. And they shudder sometimes when they hear their leaders say certain things to investors, and especially to Wall Street, because they know it's not true, and they know they're going to pay a penalty eventually. Well, so I think that was important to talk about, because one, if we can at least distinguish that that's not acceptable, and that's not what we're what we're going for in life, and that, and that if you are working for somebody like that, then recognize that that's what you're, what you're dealing with, and if there's a way to address that or... Uh, you know, find another place to to play in the sandbox, then so be it. But um, I think it's important that we recognize we've been talking so much about what's healthy, but to also recognize the other end of that spectrum. So thank you for filling us in there. You're welcome. So for the, we're coming close, but I do want to do something kind of interesting and fun that I think you did delightfully in your book that I I think will help our listeners open themselves to, to what we're trying to do here, Dr. C. And so what I want to do is I want to invite them into imagine, especially from any vantage point, any religion that they subscribe to, that, that they've been, they've grown up with, that they're connected to, and listen to this, what you have to say about this from the vantage point that wouldn't it be interesting if we could do this with everything? We, we can still know what our religion is, and we then hear from other people about their perspective of their faiths and other cultures, etc. So by religion specifically, you have a, a part in your book where Siri Karm's Car- description comes into play that he says all religions lead to the same truth, which is God. And he says, Sikhism teaches that each religion contains the whole truth, but focuses on a different aspect of the truth. And you go on to list about four different truths. Mm-hmm. I think this is really, really useful and interesting and what could open the minds of people. So if we can go through the four that I sat, that I found and let you weigh in on this and the beauty of what they bring, mm-hmm. I think it could be fun. So you mentioned that he mentions Islam focuses on humility. Yes. Will you say more about that? Well, you, you know, it's interesting because I I interviewed several Muslims for this book, and and he's absolutely right. And I have to give Siri Khan, uh, who's a very interesting Sikh leader in this community, uh, credit for, the, for these ideas because they really came from him and my meeting with him and and his friend, a Catholic priest, um, Father Ed, Ed Chuddy, and I I realized as I interview, as I interviewed Muslim leaders, you know, their focus on humility is that's why they're bowing. Just like mm-hmm. Siri Karm says, that's why Sikhs wear white because they're trying to be pure in the sense of inviting everybody in. And Muslims, you know, I was talking to a Muslim leader who actually lectures quite a bit in the Boston area. 
And he said, you know, probably what people don't realize, and, and I read the Quran twice before I met with him because I wanted to make sure I knew the facts myself as much Beautiful. as I could ascertain them. And he said to me, you know, we, we can't hate Christians because Jesus is in the Quran. He said, we can't hate Jews because Moses is in the Quran. He said, and in the Quran, we are taught to go out and make friends with people of other faiths. We're taught to reach out and to be humble that we don't have all the answers. And I thought that was very impressive because these leaders, and this particular Muslim leader in this area, he lectures to uh, Catholic churches, Protestant churches, Jewish synagogues. He wants to bring people together. And in this interfaith movement, I just, I had not been exposed to interfaith discussions. And I just found it amazing, Elise. I, I just, you know, in comes this, I have a Buddhist statue <laughs> out in my front lawn, and in comes this Catholic priest and this Sikh, and, um, and, and they're dressed differently, and they're looking at the Buddhist statue, and they looked at me and they said, they, didn't know, they hadn't met me yet, and they said, oh, I guess this is an interfaith home. And they came in and we had this great discussion, and they're so tolerant of each other. And one of the things that I learned, too, about the interfaith movement is that Interfaith empathy places emphasis not only understanding different religious perspectives, but also regardless of religions, they, they focus on unique people. You know, they don't greet, we don't greet people of other faiths by hello Buddha or hello, hello Buddhist or hello Muslim or hello Jew or, or hello Christian. Within their faith, they're unique beings. And that's, what, and that's what they're trying to do in their movement. They're trying to say, we're all unique. And Siri Kam, this wonderful Sikh and, and teacher, is saying we all believe that there's one God, we have different branches of the tree to get there. But we're even within our own religions, we're different. We're not all the same. What a black commentator said the other night, he said, sometimes I find it funny, he's a political commentator, and he said, sometimes I find it funny when they say the black vote, the black vote. He said, you know, all black people aren't the same, by the way. He said, and then they talk about the Hispanic vote, the Hispanic vote, the Hispanics are going to vote this way. He said, we're not like one Hispanic big group and we all decide which way we're going to vote. We actually have some uniqueness within us. I thought that was important to understand and emphasize. It is. It really is. Um, and quickly for our listeners here, so because I we're running out of time, we've got maybe three more minutes left. So for the sake of this idea of the interfaith uh, uh, discussion here, um, Siri Karm then goes on to say that Juda Judaism focuses on understanding. Can you say something about that? Yes, on understanding it. And I think Ju Judaism focuses a great de deal on meaning. I mean, um, mm. you know, the meaning of life and, and very, and, and Jewish people tend to be that way too. I mean, it's interesting because I have several Israeli patients now, and they really, they're very interesting because they, they like to dialogue, they like to debate, mm -hmm. they like to, you know, really try to get to the facts. And they'll take a position, but then they'll alter it depending on what you say. And, and it is very interesting. I've learned a great deal. I learned a great deal. And one of my clients in, in Israeli, he's just very open. You know, he, he talks about, you know, he says one of the difficulties is, as, as being an Israeli, we don't want to talk about the Palestinians. We don't want to talk about the Arabs. He said, when I was in school, we could study every language but Arabic. And he said, and they're our cousins and our neighbors. He said, when you, when you think of it, how silly it is. You know, and here's a man that was raised in a certain way. In fact, his father was a was a was a friend of Schindler, you know, from Schindler's List. Yes. He actually brought me a picture of Schindler. Mm. Um and his father, because his father was a principal in Israel. 
But he's seeing through the dogma that he's been exposed to, and he's seeing that both groups have something to say, and both groups could unite. But if we don't want to talk to each other, or we're told we can't talk to each other because that other group is evil, nothing happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's why I thought this was such a beautiful thing to open up for our listeners, is imagine if you could be in that space. And it kind of goes back yes. to that, that topic we had before about, what was that, that something about polling? What do yeah, we call that? Deliberative poll- polling, yes. <clears throat> All right, so we're getting close, but can you just say a couple words about the focus that he says that Christianity is focused on unconditional love, which is evidenced by God's sacrifice for his only son for all of us? Yes. Just maybe a well, minute on that. Yeah, I think here he's, he's, spoken to, he's, he's focusing on Jesus on the cross, that he sacrificed himself for us. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it's very obvious that that happened. And, and he, he indicated, Jesus is saying, I have unconditional love for all human beings because I'm sacrificing myself for this purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that just opens something when you can start to recognize that they that these faiths focus on a different aspect of truth. I, I just feel like yes. that just opens yes. so much. So here we are toward the end already, Dr. C. It's amazing to me, but I want to finish with if with this idea, what I consider to be the promise of your book. Um, and so if you want to live in, in our diverse world with ease and joy, you must, we all must, you say, reevaluate the ideas we accepted based on being naive children observing biased adults. Mm-hmm. You say your future, our future depends on making this effort. Commit to a journey of uncovering the truth about yourself and others, and you will be part of making a world based on compassion for all rather than a world based on small-minded perspectives that limit the potential of many for the favor of a few. The more we encounter others who see different on the who seem different on the surface the more we find out who we really are that is stunningly beautiful mm, mm, thank you thank you very much um do you so here we are toward the end i just want to give you the chance to close you know this is a, a thought leadership platform that's designed to advance the conversation on meeting passion inspiration purpose in life and at work in about say 30 seconds what would you like to leave our listeners with well, I would like to leave the listeners with the, the fact that empathy and the acceptance of diversity, it's going to expand your mind, give you a greater sense of ease in the world, in addition to causing a positive brain change, which will absolutely re- result in a higher spirited and successful company, family, community, but it'll also be part of reversing the dangerous trend in our society of prejudice and hate. Mm, beautiful way to finish, Dr. Sarah McCauley. Thank you again for coming back, staying in my world, doing the important work that you're doing, and helping make the world a better place. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Elise. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. It's very, very, very uh, humbling for me to talk with you. You're such a bright person and such a great interviewer, and I know you're on the same path and trying to do the same thing. So thank you very much. I sure am. Thank you. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Dr. Arthur Sear McCauley, his work, or any of his books, the best place to start is probably his website, his personal website, which is balanceyoursuccess.com. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a recorded podcast. We were on the air with President and General Counselor, Counsel Hugh Welsh of DSM, talking about how their purpose-led and performance-driven culture makes them profitable, gets them through the hard times, and what they're doing in response to the coronavirus. Next week, we'll be on the air with Louis Efron of The Voice of Purpose, talking about his book and practice in Where Purpose Meets Execution, helping companies get the right balance between the two to drive profitability and ongoing relevance. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. See you there. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. 
Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.